From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Welcome, Cindy and Steve. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, here are the issues. The Taliban announced an all-male interim government for Afghanistan stacked with veterans of their hardline rule from the 1990s and the 20-year battle against the U.S.-led coalition, a move that seems unlikely to win the international support the new leaders desperately need to avoid an economic meltdown. The United States says it is assessing the Taliban's announcement of a caretaker government and said it has made clear the expectation that the Afghan people deserve an inclusive government. Meanwhile, U.S. and allies are discussing efforts to continue the flow of humanitarian aid to the country after the Taliban takeover. Democrats face a month jam-packed with deadlines and legislative challenges, with the biggest challenge being the Democrats' self-imposed deadline for advancing an infrastructure and spending package that is at the center of President Biden's economic and legislative agenda. Additionally, the White House is asking Congress to approve an additional $24 billion in spending to handle the cost of Hurricane Ida and other natural disasters, as well as $6.4 billion for the resettlement of evacuees from Afghanistan. President Biden outlined a six-pronged plan to curb the Delta variant and increase the number of Americans who are vaccinated. Rising caseloads have raised concerns as children head back to school, while also rattling investors and upending company return-to-office plans. America commemorates the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks this month, when followers of Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda network hijacked four commercial jetliners and crashed them into the Trade Center's Twin Towers, the Pentagon in Northern Virginia, and a farm field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. What lessons have been learned from this national tragedy? Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Cindy, what is U.S. reaction to the Taliban's announcement of an all-male interim government? Well, Kim, Secretary Blinken is trying to regain U.S. diplomatic footing after a widely criticized exit from Afghanistan in August. So Blinken was in Germany and met with German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas, and he said we're still assessing the caretaker government, pointing out that this is an interim government. But both Blinken and Maas said they were not optimistic and Blinken saying that the Afghan people deserve an all-inclusive government, but it's pretty clear now that that was wishful thinking because it's all Taliban, it's all male, it's hardliners, and some reporters asked Secretary Blinken and the German Foreign Minister Moss, how are you going to deal with an interior minister in Afghanistan who was wanted by the FBI? And the German Foreign Minister said, well, again, we're not optimistic, but we're going to have to talk to the leaders because we still have our nationals in the country. And that is the focus right now. And, and Blinken had to acknowledge that there are charter planes that the Taliban is not allowing to leave the country. And right now, there are hopeful signs that the Taliban may be allowing foreigners to leave, but there's still issues about what the Taliban will accept as valid travel documents. And for a lot of at-risk Afghans, 
who have helped Americans and, and helped other Western countries, some of them do not have what are considered valid travel documents. So their fate at the moment still remains very uncertain. Also, the U.S. is in the process of resettling more than 120,000 Afghans here in the U.S. A similar number of Vietnamese were resettled here after the U.S. war in Vietnam. So what are the challenges? I know, Cindy, you mentioned not having documents. So what are some of the other challenges and what are some benefits to the American society? There have been many Afghans settled in the United States uh, since September 11th, 2001. And there have been a range of interpreters and other people who have helped the United States. In many cases, along with many Iraq refugees who have been resettled here in the United States, people who helped the United States in the war in Iraq. Many of them have been accepted by the communities that they've been resettled. There has been, for the most part, an outpouring of support and taking in of these refugees here in the United States. There is a political issue in some communities as to whether or not these people have been vetted enough and questions as to whether the quick and hasty exit of the United States out of Afghanistan may have allowed some undesirable people aboard some of the evacuation flights. That still remains to be seen as a lot of the vetting of these people are being done outside the United States. But for the most part, the United States and many of the communities have been outwardly expressing their eagerness to take in many of the Afghan refugees. Also, and just looking ahead at the future of Afghanistan under a Taliban rule, what will be the relations between the U.S. and Afghanistan, Cindy? Well, this is a question that is being asked a lot, and Secretary Blinken is saying that it will entirely depend on the actions of the new Taliban government and that we're waiting to see what they do, and this on the things that are most important to the United States. First of all, letting foreigners out. Secondly, granting safe passage to Afghans to come and go as they please from their country. And then the respect for women, girls, and minorities. And we also have a humanitarian crisis looming with a drought in the north of the country, and so also letting humanitarian aid get in. So right now, the U.S. has adopted very much a wait-and-see attitude. There's no talks right now of any kind of official recognition or reopening an embassy or anything of that nature. And I see that one of the last Western countries to have a diplomatic presence, Norway, that the Taliban took over that embassy and uh, proceeded to destroy children's books and bottles of wine. So right now, I think things are not looking good. And we're seeing some very brave and defiant Afghan women taking to the streets to be allowed to work, for girls to go to school. And we're seeing first instances of these women being publicly lashed, whipped on the streets in some cases, and that the Taliban government is now saying we're going to stop protests and demonstrations for now. It's interesting to see how other nations are trying to fill the void left by the United States. China announced it's going to donate about $30 million worth of food and medicine, including 3 million doses of China's COVID vaccine to Afghanistan. And China's got a border with Afghanistan, and they've been very quick to 
step into the breach that the United States left. The United Nations is saying that basic services are collapsing in Afghanistan. They need $600 million to meet the needs for the rest of the year. Just under half of the population depend daily on assistance from humanitarian organizations. And many who worked with humanitarian organizations in Afghanistan have left. And uh, skeleton staffs are trying to help the Afghans, but they're also trying to protect warehouses and storage facilities and their own offices from being looted and overtaken by the new Taliban government. So one of the things that I'm really looking to as far as an indication of where the United States and other countries are going to stand in the future is how does the Taliban actually take care of the needs of its people? And I think that's their biggest challenge that they have to face, as well as being open to having people come into the country and help them. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things that I'm really looking at as far as how other countries deal with Afghanistan is how Afghanistan then deals with its people. Yes, you all brought up some really good points and concerns. And the Taliban must realize that the people of Afghanistan of today are not the same people that were 20 years ago. They're a lot more educated and cosmopolitan, as you brought out, Cindy. So they will probably be in for some very big challenges there. On now to some legislative challenges Democrats are facing this month. Among them is getting parts of the $3.5 trillion spending package finalized. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer gave his committees until September 15th to finalize their parts of the spending package so that Democrats can then start negotiating a bill within the 50-member caucus. So, Steve, how much of a challenge is this, and what obstacles do they face? It's a tremendous challenge. First of all, there's a deadline at the end of the month, end of September. The fiscal year ends. The budget year ends. So any spending that starts on October 1st has to be funded by a resolution of Congress. And right now, there isn't a budget resolution. It's a lot of money to get through Congress with a little time to do so. Because of the politics in the Congress, there's very little margin for any defections. Democrats have just an eight-vote margin in the House, and the Senate is evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. While there's a bipartisan agreement on spending more than a trillion dollars on infrastructure, rebuilding and replacing that hard infrastructure like roads and bridges, as well as extend broadband nationwide, Democrats are at odds with each other within the Democratic caucus over the budget plan that progressives in the party say will expand health care, combat climate change, described as a major overhaul to America's social safety net. But moderates within the Democratic Party say the $3.5 trillion price tag on that budget is just too much. And the main obstacle is one person, the most conservative of the Democratic senators, Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Without Manchin's vote, Manchin says that this $3.5 trillion package is about $2 trillion more expensive than he can stomach. And without Manchin's vote, Democrats can't even get to a tie-breaking vote in the Senate. So there's a lot of politicking that needs to be done, a lot of persuasion with a clock that is ticking in Congress's head as the end of the month looms. Those are some very big concerns there. And you brought up Senator Joe Manchin, who really suggested to just hit the pause button and assess 
where the country is today and really look at can we afford this package. But in the end, do you think that the Democrats will win him over? I think that at the end, Biden is going to have to get involved. When asked about getting Joe Manchin on board, someone who President Biden worked with for quite a long time in the Senate when Manchin was a senator and then when he was governor of West Virginia. When asked about getting Manchin on board, Biden said he's always been with me. I think there's something that we can work out. And he's looking forward to talking to Senator Manchin about it. In the end, it's really about whether the Democrats want to go ahead and pressure each other to get the votes necessary to pass this budget, to do what most of the Democrats want to do as far as increasing the social safety net. It really is a matter of how much money are they going to spend. And the politics of this is getting a little bit out of hand as far as the Democrats are concerned. So many people are concentrated on the price tag, three and a half trillion dollars, while many Democrats say there isn't enough of a discussion of everything that three and a half trillion dollars would pay for. And so there's a lot of fiscal politics as well as party politics going on. Will they get to the end of the month and pass something? I think they will. Will it be three and a half trillion dollars? Unlikely. President Biden visited parts of New York and New Jersey that were destroyed by remnants of Hurricane Ida. And he's asking for an additional $24 billion to handle the cost of Hurricane Ida and other natural disasters. So where does this fit in as a priority in the whole scheme of the package? Well, climate change is a key issue in this and the big $3.5 trillion bill that Steve was talking about. And Biden is saying, look, we're already living it. Look, there's fires in parts of the country. There's hurricanes over much of the whole eastern part of the nation. What more evidence do you need to see that New York subway systems could not handle the flooding? This is something that we're living through right now that we need to be tackling now. And observers, I think, from all sides of the political spectrum, really think that the next few weeks, this month of September, is make or break for President Biden and his legacy. This bill, if it's passed, this $3.5 trillion bill would be transformative. And progressive senators like Senator Bernie Sanders are calling it human infrastructure. And Biden's core theme has been democratic governments, democracies can work for average Americans, for working class and middle class Americans. And he needs to prove it. And if he's not able with the thinnest of majorities, only 50-50 in the Senate, but if Biden is not able to get this passed, then this could be a very serious blow to his credibility. As far as getting help to those who need it for those people impacted by Hurricane Ida, I think there's going to be money for that in Republican-dominated states of Louisiana and Mississippi and Tennessee, as well as Democratic-dominated states like New Jersey and New York. So I think that there's enough politics in Congress to allow for funding to help some of these people. But as Cindy mentioned, Biden called this a code red as far as the environment is concerned. And when you get right down to it, the polling indicates, and you, whether you trust polls or not, the polling indicates that the programs and policies that the Democrats are putting forward in their budget plan is overwhelmingly popular with the public. The big issue, though, is the price tag and whether or not the politicians are willing to spend the money to make that happen.
Yes, as you all pointed out, it's going to be a very busy month, September, on Capitol Hill to get a lot of this legislation passed. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, fighting the Delta variant of COVID-19. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panelists who are joining me via Skype, Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Well, Cindy, President Biden continues to keep the COVID-19 pandemic and its variants at the forefront of his priorities. What changes can we expect in the months ahead? After getting very high marks during the beginning of his presidency for his handling of COVID with tens of millions of Americans getting vaccinated, now there's a sort of a sense of national exhaustion that here we are facing another round. American school children are going back. I mean, those under 12 are too young to get vaccinated. So parents are very concerned. And especially in states with low vaccination rates, there's alarming numbers of children getting very sick and being hospitalized. There are a lot of fears and President Biden is again trying to regain the footing and is likely to call for more mask mandates and perhaps some federal vaccination mandates to try to get these spiraling numbers to go back down. But on the encouraging side, 75% of U.S. adults have now received at least one COVID-19 vaccine and 70% do support mask mandates if the numbers of cases are going up. Sometimes we think that the country is, is hopelessly divided, but it looks like around 70% are in favor of taking action to try to stop this COVID spread. There was a time when the rollout of the COVID vaccines gave everybody hope that the pandemic would soon end. But between the Delta variant that is sweeping not just this country, but going through other countries, and vaccine resistance in many corners of the United States has led to this new crush of patients in hospitals, especially rural hospitals. And most of those who are hospitalized with COVID are unvaccinated. President Biden is going to use the power of the purse, basically, to mandate vaccines. Vaccination is proven to be the number one opportunity to fight COVID, and you can still get it, but the symptoms are very much lessened if you're vaccinated. And the White House is going to mandate vaccines for organizations for entities that receive federal funds, such as nursing homes. He's already mandated that nursing home employees be vaccinated because nursing homes get money through the federal government Medicaid and Medicare programs. And there's a lot of different programs that federal money goes to, and he's using that as a way to mandate vaccines. If you want to keep getting federal money, you better mandate that your employees get vaccines. And there's going to be more pressure on private businesses that don't get any federal money to mandate vaccines for their employees. When asked if the new steps are going to impact Americans' lives, the White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki says it depends on if you're vaccinated or not. And key to 
any kind of political gains that President Biden and Democrats hope to make in 2022 when congressional elections come around and in 2024 when President Biden is up for re-election, it's all going to depend on whether COVID is under control. And that is the reality of not just the COVID politics, but the spending politics we talked about earlier will depend on whether or not COVID is under control. For Biden, getting it under control is key to any political success he has over the next three years. Both you and Cindy have really summed up very well the issues regarding COVID and mandating. But I wanted to get in our last topic. It was 20 years ago on September 11th, 2001, that the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history occurred. For many, this anniversary arrives at a time in the U.S. that ranges from very personal to very sweeping. So I'll just throw this out to both of you. First of all, just to get your personal feelings on this anniversary of 9-11, of September 11th, 2001. I had the opportunity to visit New York recently, and it really brought it back to me, and it was very emotional. And you talk to people in New York and, and Americans in other parts of the country, and a lot of Americans say, you know, remember how the country was so united right after those terrible attacks and almost 3,000 people killed and people were flying American flags and so many Americans came to New York to, to volunteer and to help. And some people are asking, you know, what happened to that spirit of unity with the country being so polarized? For me personally covering Afghanistan over the years, it just really brought it home that during the attacks in 2001, the U.S. responded so quickly and with massive airstrikes on Afghanistan. And within weeks, the Taliban government was routed out of Kabul. And now we see 20 years later, the Taliban within weeks taking over the whole country with very little resistance and the Taliban back in power in Kabul. And it almost seems like bookends and not in a good way that 20 years and so many Americans and other service members from other countries there, and so many Afghans killed, and that 20 years later, the Taliban is back in power. Cindy makes a really good point about the unity of the United States right after the September 11th attacks in 2001. To see the divisions within American society 20 years later is A, time flies, and B, how quickly events can change the way people view not just this country, but what it can do. Cindy's mention of the Taliban now back in power after 20 years. The biggest lesson I see the United States learning in this is the military can do quite a bit with its might, but trying to remake a country and bring democracy to places where there hadn't been democracy ever can't be done with a sword or a gun. It has to be done through various different methods, tried and true methods that were tested during the Cold War as far as diplomacy and promoting culture and cultural ties between Americans and other people seem to have worked then. It isn't necessarily working now. I don't know if it's something that we're not using in the toolbox of American diplomacy aren't using as well as we used to, but there are a lot of lessons that can be taken from the last 20 years about how 
the United States deals with other countries and learn from it and try not to repeat the mistakes of history. I would agree with Steve that, you know, when you ask what happened to the unity at that moment, and if you look at foreign policy, not all, but many Americans would say the U.S. made some big mistakes, widening the mission in Afghanistan to include trying to make it a democracy and also going into Iraq, which actually had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. Mistakes do have consequences. And I think the U.S. standing in the world and also Americans' feelings has the country changed for the better or the worse. More people think that the country has changed for the worse. And I think it has to do with some major foreign policy errors that were made. Well, we will have to end on that note. My thanks to our panelists, Cindy Singh, VOA diplomatic correspondent, and Steve Radish, VOA executive producer. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 